Welcome to Maker Mom, a podcast where I explore the stories of Maker Moms and the life they lead. Each week, I will bring you the behind-the-scenes story of a new Maker Mom. I'm Katie Freeman, a furniture designer and content creator running freemanfurnishings.com and your host of the Maker Mom podcast. You can find Maker Moms hanging out in the Facebook community at Maker Moms and on the web at MakerMomPodcast.com. If you love what you hear, please subscribe, leave a stellar review, and share this out with other Maker Moms you know. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Maker Mom podcast. Today I have two very special guests, uh, Deirdre Visser and Laura Mays, both uh, women woodworkers who have uh, started and are working on finishing up a book called Women Woodworking and about women who uh, woodwork currently and also a bit about the history of women in woodworking and craft. Um, and from that, they also have worked together to curate and kick off a show, an art show, with 14 women um, woodworkers that is in being held in Philadelphia called Making a Seat at the Table. Um, so I have been following along with Laura for quite some time on Instagram, um, and I just got really jazzed and excited when I started seeing stuff pop up about this Making a Seat at the Table show. Um, and I reached out to her. And uh, if you follow along with the show, you know that the last episode, episode 55, um, I did an interview, solo interview with Laura, who um, is not only a woodworker and teacher and curator and author, but is also a mom. So she had her own episode. Uh, but I did want to give an episode to the two of them and we don't talk about momming in this episode at all, but we do talk a lot about uh, the nuances of women in woodworking. And I'm sure you will find it as fascinating as I did to talk to these two wonderful women who are just packed full of knowledge um, about our history and just how they got to where they're at. And so I will not chatter at you anymore and let you get to this interview. I'm going to start with Laura. I know you were just on last week's podcast and did an introduction, but I'm still going to ask both of you to introduce yourself and uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, I will let you guys choose who goes first. Oh. <laughs> okay, I'll go first because uh, Laura's older. <laughs> <laughs> That is totally wrong of me right there. Um, my name is Deirdre Visser. I am a curator in San Francisco at a small university. Um, I am also have been a woodworker for a long time, although that has rarely been my primary uh, occupation. So, and I'm also um, a writer and a community-based artist. Okay, I'm Laura Mays, and uh, I'm a woodworker and a mother and um, a teacher at the Cranoff School in Fort Bragg in California, and um, now also a budding curator and writer. <laughs> at least the curating part has happened, the writing part is still underway, very much so. All right, well, Laura, you kind of talked a little bit about how you two met and kind of the jump off of this collaboration last time but let's kind of go into that a little bit further uh, where did you guys how did you guys meet where'd you meet and how'd you go down this path um uh after my mother passed away i took a year-long leave of absence and i went to the what was then college of the redwoods for their nine-month furniture making intensive and uh, which is where i met laura who was um principal faculty member and program director and um i was i was at thanksgiving dinner with laura and her family and i asked her at the end of dinner um what it's like to be a woman in a male-dominated field which i take as a given about woodworking 
and I don't assume is either all good or all bad. It is serious. And, um, and so we tell this a little bit differently, I will say, but in my memory of it, Laura shut it down fully and immediately, which I was interested in and let rest there for that evening. Um, but the conversation continued to come up. Um, uh, pluralism and um, is a big part of my curatorial practice and my practice as an educator. So it came up over and over again over the course of the year. And um, sometime in the spring after we had organized a series of events related to an exhibition about furniture, uh, Laura turned to me and said, maybe there is something to that question you asked. And, um, and somehow, I think Laura said last week, in some kind of flurry of positive feeling about this series of talks at an exhibition that we'd put together, um, we decided to write a book. <laughs> so here we are, four years, this Thanksgiving will be four years from that first conversation about it. Okay. Um, so you, you Deidre, um, do curate shows in San Francisco, correct? Yes. Is it all art in general? Is it woodwork? What kind of, um, you talked about community art. Can right. you give a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, well, the, the work that I have done as an educator and a curator was um, originally primarily photographic, um, contemporary photography. That's also where my background is um, as a, a student and an artist. Um, so more and more, I have four years ago, we opened up a new, five years ago, now we opened up a new exhibition space that has given me more freedom to show work across multiple disciplines. So um, while I have been a woodworker for many years, up to the point that Laura and I put on this show after of Redwood, of College of the Redwoods work, um, I hadn't done an exhibition of woodworking. My own practice, today as an artist is largely um, a collaborative one in a, in a community uh, in San Francisco. Okay, okay. Now I am curious, so how long did it take? You said it's this Thanksgiving will be four years since that original conversation, but at what point did you guys decide together, like, let's curate a show together, let's do this? I think that came about through meeting, uh, well, Deirdre and I both presented papers at the Furniture Society Conference last summer in, was the it summer? no, sorry, the summer before, so the summer of 2018 in San Francisco. Um, and uh, Deirdre presented her research to date on the history of women in woodworking. And I presented a paper about um, a woman called Carolyn Grew Sheridan and her uh, I think I mentioned this last week as well, um, the possibility of her, the sort of like, she almost became the editor for Cranoff's first book and the kind of what if uh, story, um, if she had been that editor um, in the summer of 1976. Um, and attending that conference was uh, Jennifer Nava Milliken from the Center for Art and Wood, who had been in her, her position for two weeks uh, as the new artistic director there. And she was looking to um, put on a show that had made some reference to the fact that, that 2019 is the 100th anniversary of suffrage, or you know, one step in the suffrage um, in the United States. And uh, there we were, appearing at exactly the right moment with this material. And uh, we were interested and I don't really know how I think we were like, yeah, show that sounds good. Um, <laughs> I, I, so, uh, so it, it's, it clicked very quickly and very easily for, for both sides. Uh, sounds like I mean, a series you know, of, we, of happy mistakes. It, yeah. Together. <laughs> we really thought that rep, you know, that the seeing the work would be even, would be a, a big kind of like, writing a book is great and a book is this thing of record and um, we'll sit in libraries for hopefully a long time and people will look at, but actually being present with the work is another experience again. And we wanted to uh, make that experience possible. So the idea of the book came before? Oh, yes. The show? Like, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So a couple of years at least. 
yeah because it was because so the book idea must have been like the june, may or june of what's three 2016 yeah. and then the show started to kind of manifest in the summer of 2018 okay um since the show is currently running let's talk a little bit more about that uh where did the name come from um was it always right from the start since you guys were delivering those papers was it always about women specifically in woodworking um well i'll, I'll start and then you can fill in the blanks laura um it was always about women in woodworking um this was the lens through which we were going to look at this field of practice today um what was the first part of your question <laughs> oh the name well so in organizing in conceiving of the show um and one important uh aspect of it is that it is not a show is is not the same as a book and while that seems obvious um it was important to allow the the exhibition to be a standalone experience um particularly because it precedes the book <laughs> also by by a good chunk of time um so we invited uh, 14 women that we had been in conversation with for the, for the book. Um, and then it felt very important to open it up to expand the field beyond what we know and what we had come to know in the course of our research. So we put out a call and um, advertised it widely uh, on the web. Um, and we got, to our surprise, we got 160 submissions. Um, and again, in, a, in an effort to expand the discourse beyond our own thinking, we um, invited a jury uh, to help us make decisions about the submission process. And so we invited Tom Loser um, and Cheryl Riley, who is an artist and designer in New York, and then Nava uh, at the Center for Art and Wood. So the, um, and I think to your point about, or to your question about the title, I bring up this process because that is ultimately what helped us decide on our title. We, over the course of writing this book, we had several titles. It's a, I can't remember all of them even. And titling for me is really hard because you have to sit with it forever. And, and we wanted to, you know, we're, we're addressing gender and we're addressing making and we're addressing inclusion and we're addressing visibility. And, you know, so there's sort of all of these pieces, all of these intentions for the title and so making a seat at the table emerged out of our conversation with the jurors is that fair laura yeah i mean specifically it was um tom loser um and and even more so it was tom loser's wife who came up with the name <laughs> birdie and she uh well it's uh, tom presented it to us at one point we really needed a title kind of urgently because we had to put this call out we couldn't just be like you know that project we're doing um, and we had it called uh, Women's Work for a long time. And it was our working title for at least a year. And it, it was kind of okay, but we felt like it didn't. Um, well, for a start, it's also it's a title of a very important book on women and textiles from the 70s. So it was kind of, you know, that's already. And it didn't quite address, make the point that we wanted to make, which is about um, bringing people together, bringing them in, letting them be seen, letting them be there. And it seemed, it, it kind of worked immediately. We heard this title, we were like, oh yeah, that's good. That'll work. Yeah, it's quite good. Cause of course it refers to making, but it also mm -hmm. refers to perhaps, I mean, as a, as a metaphor that's quite common culturally, um, it, it suggests like changing the shape of the table, you know, um, not, you know, making it bigger, making it a different shape, all, all of these sort of sense of possibility. Right. Actually, that's a interesting, that brings up one of the points that we have encountered, which is that people, especially, well, men sometimes feel threatened by this um, project. And um, we wanted to make it like, you know, you can get more people around this table. It's not a question of giving up your seat. It's a question of pulling up another chair to it. I think historically, the people who hold power, whether or not they're conscious of that power, um, can feel that equity is a loss in that um, that the seat, that the table is finite, and so we do want to. That's and that's a really interesting uh, point that you both bring up. I was recently 
like two weeks ago at a, um, a conference called Women Who Make, and it was about create, women who are creative entrepreneurs. And somebody brought up, you know, a participant in the conference, which was fairly small, but they brought up that they sometimes feel extra judgment from other women and uh, versus like men who might be doing something very similar to what they're doing. And one of the speakers commented back, that's because the thought is, is that there's only one seat at the table for that, for a woman. And if there's like a woman who's already there, she's going to feel threatened that you're coming to take her one seat instead of, no, we're just bringing another chair up. Like the person who's already there doesn't lose their spot at the table. We're just bringing more people up to the table. So mm -hmm. I think that's something that's definitely being felt um, culturally right now, uh, not just in woodworking or making, but probably across several industries and fields where uh, men are the predominant uh, people, you know, who are in that industry. Mm -hmm. I noticed that phenomenon slightly in teaching, where when you have a small number of women students, you kind of they, they are representing womanhood, whereas as the number grows and it starts to um, become more equal, uh, then they start to become just people with their own very distinct characteristics. And it, they no longer have to be, carry that burden of being like the lone woman or the very few women who kind of have to do better and, um, and represent oh, an entire 50% of the population. And I, and I, and I understand that, that uh, I think I was sometimes have been tougher on female students almost because I wanted them to, you know, step up and represent. And it's, it's so much better when there's more women and it. it can all be kind of like shared, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it, and I think it's important um, to say that, I mean, that I think we both feel that it's better for the field of practice, the more voices who are at the table. It extends the conversation, it extends the kinds of questions that are being asked and the solutions that are being posed. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, to your point, I mean, people coming from different viewpoint, right, and or different lens um, are going to bring different ideas to the table. Part of the reason I asked maybe specifically about uh, women is I didn't know if there was any thought given in to um, the non-binary uh, gender, you know, uh, people who don't fit that binary if there was any kind of thought given to allowing them to participate in the show? Um, qu quite a lot of thought about it, um, understanding that, that notions, that concepts of sex and gender are, um, are contentious terrain. Um, and we want to, we want to create, um, we, want to, we want to advance inclusion in the field and we want to speak at the same time to the specific history for women in this field of practice. And so it's a, it is a, you know, we talked to a number of friends who are, um, who are non-binary non in their identifications and where we landed, um, which is where a lot of women's colleges have also landed, is if you identify as a woman, um, you are part of this project. Um, and so some of our makers that we've talked to on both sides of uh, the divide have, uh, you know, identify as non-binary and we've been in discussion with them about how they navigate this field as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be very interesting too. And that leads me to ask, were there any applicants who were trans women? Um, not that we're aware of. Okay. Um, we have um, interviewed uh, a couple who identify as trans or non-binary. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. One of our, or a couple of our, um, our people in the show um, identify as non-binary. Okay. Um, I am a bit curious too more about this process of interviewing uh, as your research for your book, which 
feels like, I mean, that research is what led into the show, right? You were uh, being able to present on that a bit. Um, how, I guess, in your research, are you focused more on like the common makeup of the field and women in it? Or have you done some historical looking too to see how things have changed over time? Um, we have, I'll, I'll start this, Laura, and then maybe you can speak to our research process mm -hmm. uh, in the interviews. But um, I have done, worked at some length um, on the history of women in, in the practice coming from the Middle Ages forward. Um, and so that's been fascinating, and I think it's a growing section of the book. You know, it started um, as one chapter, and I think now it might be two or three, because uh, it's really rich and complicated. Uh out of curiosity, how did you find it? Because I feel like, I feel like, you know, as I've looked or been intrigued by this idea of women in, in woodworking or making over history, I have struggled to find it, to find the information, to find the record of acknowledging these women. Well, here I want to acknowledge a woman whose last name I'm forgetting. Um, Suzanne, Laura, Alice, Alice, oh, crap. <laughs> uh, I'm going to look quickly. Uh, no, you go on talking. I'll look it up. Okay. So there's a remarkable woman who is a blogger who has done incredible research and, um, into, um, into women in the craft guilds and in the middle ages. And she is, um, looking at representation in the arts. So there's quite a lot of um, representational painting in the Middle Ages that depicted uh, the craft guilds. And, um, and so she looked not only at the most common representations, but where, where there were representations of women that seemed to diverge from that. Um, and so much since um, painting was not done from life, it was, painting was about a cultural story. And it was about a cultural story that was closely um, shaped by the church and what the church felt was an appropriate distribution of labor. And so, so that's where we see um, women appearing, you know, standing at the bench of the man who is working. Um, and however, that said, there are exceptions to that. And so she takes a deep dive into those paintings and looks at women who were clearly making, um, making barrels, who were clearly, you know, doing something that diverged from our, the arch, our understandings of what women um, were allowed to do in that time. So she's done remarkable. Um, it is Suzanne Ellison. Suzanne Ellison, yeah, and she writes um, occasionally for the Lost Art Press blog. That's where we we came across her. But she's been an extraordinary resource and very generous in sharing her information and in sending us um, ongoing, you know, images that continue to render more complex that history. So as someone who has at least followed along on social media for the show uh, part of the project, I know that there was at least one, if not more, Canadian women who are a part of the show. Um, so as you're doing your research for the book, has there been any, have you noticed any difference between uh, cultural differences of like where people are living at and how they how the trade is different based on that well we're looking at North America and within that we're mostly looking at the United States um, and we haven't gone into this in a great de deal of detail or written kind of this part of it yet but my observation is that the English-speaking world has a, a pretty similar uh, woodworking culture so that would include those little islands off this side of Europe and uh, <laughs> Australia, Canada, the United States. Um, and we have talked to, uh, to people from other, like we talked with a woman from India and um, tried to kind of untangle a little bit the relationship of woodwork. I mean, it's such a huge, you know, society and woodworking. Um, I don't think that we are going to utilize that other than to shed light on the experience particularly the United States. So we are, we are focused on that. Um, I think there's no doubt that there are, you know, differences, <laughs> cultural differences in the relations of um, 
woodworking to society and then within that women to woodworking mm-hmm. uh, one one of our um interviewees uh lived you know was born in japan and lived there you know was educated there up to and worked you know beyond um college level and, and worked there for a bit before coming to the united states so she's got a japanese um she can she, she tells us about the japanese approach but uh yeah it's 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 primarily um the u.s okay um and canada to some extent oh hello friends today's podcast is sponsored by carolina shoe now i have been wearing my steel toe Carolina shoe, safety shoes, safety boots, really, for quite some time now. And I'm going to tell you, I love them. And I wear them every single time that I go to the shop. Um, They keep my feet safe uh, with the steel toe tip. They keep my feet safe from falling objects. Uh, But there's many different types of safety toe options, not just steel toe. Also, they're oil and slip resistant and waterproof. Uh, So whenever I get some water in the shop, they keep my feet nice and dry. And they're super comfortable. I wasn't expecting that, but they really are. So take it from me, who does wear these shoes every time I'm in the shop, that they're really awesome. And if you want to go check it out and get your very own pair, you can get a special 10% off using the coupon code MAKERMOM10 at checkout so thank you carolina shoe and go get yourself a pair of these awesome boots and thank me later okay so primarily united states yeah uh what are the a what's the age range of the women who are participating in the show um uh you know what do do we have numbers laura it are with our youngest is mid 20s and the um, oldest must be in her early 70s yeah okay um so i would imagine that they have very different perspectives on not just the uh craft but how it has changed and what the landscape of it looks like now well what one of the interesting things and it's kind of it uh, at the ACC conference recently, it kind of came home to me in a very specific way was how this is a cycle. This is a cycle to some extent. Um, I think women feel that they went, the women who were breaking into woodworking in the 1980s, the early 1980s feel like this is, (laughs) they've been through this and here we are doing it again. I mean, obviously there's, there are differences as well. The, The world is a different place. We've had, you know, we have me too and we have, all kinds of differences, but there isn't, there is a, in one way, there's a pattern of it being, um, we thought we'd done this, they said, but turns out we didn't, you know, and here we are doing it again. And I think um, one difference is that there are more women now. So the women in the 1980s who were really the first women come, to come into woodworking kind of post title nine and um, post second wave feminism, um, they were they were pretty much a, a kind of gang, you know. They were friends. There were a few enough of them that they literally knew knew each other to, for the most part. Um, whereas now it's a it's a far greater number and a more diverse geographically in all kinds of ways. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that cycle? On like that feeling of like we've done this before. Well, I don't think it's unique to woodworking. I think that women in politics would, uh, and pretty much any field, I think that there was an enormous kind of rush of enthusiasm at the, uh, in the 1970s, and a lot of legal structures were put in place. And it felt like, well, that's going to make everything okay. And then women did um, kind of like make these advances in equality, but they didn't make, those, some of those advances have been rolled back. The advances didn't go far enough. Um, there's a feeling like once advances have been made, it's inevitable that more will happen, but that in fact, it isn't inevitable that more will happen. Uh, sometimes, you know, that once women reach a certain percentage in a field, people become women included become complacent that, Oh, we're done now. You know, we've got this. Um, so I think all of those, those things, uh, Deidre, I don't know if you would like to add to that. No. Do you think, do you think it's just, women or do you think it's any 
and I and I say this a bit tongue in cheek, but any um, minority group where it's that cyclical, like kind of continuous resurgence settles down, you know, the, the two steps forward, one step back type of uh, mentality or. I, um, I think that it's broadly true of social movements, (laughs) you know, I think, you know, asking, um, African-Americans who are on the forefront of making change in the late 60s uh, would say the same. You know, that, that changing culture is difficult and uh, time-consuming and uh, uncertain mm-hmm. and not linear. Absolutely. Um, I want to, it may seem like I'm going backwards a little bit, but this popped into my head because in every make or mom interview I do, I ask them whether they feel like there's been any challenges about being a woman in at least what's perceived as a more male dominated field. And I get a, you know, varied response. Some say they haven't, they don't feel like they have some react more like, uh, Laura did to your original question. (laughs) And very few actually will talk about a moment where they feel like it was very clear and evident that they were being treated differently based on their gender. So I guess, Deidre, I want to ask, like, what, what brought you to ask Laura that question? Like, what did you see about it that led you to ask that question? Well, I think to answer that, I have to tell you a little bit about my own history. I, um, uh, I went to a women's college as an undergraduate. Coming out of a women's college, I worked as a carpenter for one of the first women to enter the building trades in the Bay Area in the 70s, um, uh, Ruth Ann Crawford. So. Um, and, you know, we, she had a small business. It was, for the most part, just Ruth Ann and myself. Um, and so uh, cert- while I certainly encountered, a, you know, a kind of particular kind of behavior at the lumberyard, my boss assumed that I could do whatever, you know, that she placed no limitations on what I could do, certainly because of my gender. Um, I also came, I was, I went to a girl's school in middle school and I have five sisters and a a mother who, you know, raised six girls to do whatever it is we wanted to do. So, and then I taught at a women's college. So I take this discussion and this kind of claiming, I see it as a positive act of claiming. We all have multiple subjective identities that we bring to everything we do straight, cisgendered, straight white men have a, have a set of subjective identities that they bring to their making. So for me, it's not a question of being judged by a different set of standards or, you know, and I, I understand all of that. Um, but as I said at the beginning, I don't take it as all, I don't assume that it's a negative experience or, or assume that it's a strictly positive experience. It is simply a fact of the field. Okay. Um, and I agree that, um, I mean, as, as I work through a field, my background is, um, in manufacturing technology. So even outside of woodworking, I've, it's very frequently that I am the only woman at the table. Um, and so, and I'm just very used to that and it doesn't bother me at all. It took me time to gain confidence to speak up. Um, because I think people who are raised to be gendered female, um, generally speaking, tend to want to take a back seat to the uh, male opinion in the room. That's just how we're raised. Um, not to say always, but I have a feeling that that's uh, the priority that's given. So I don't necessarily look at it any different, but I've understood that probably more so after becoming a mom, that being female is part of my identity 
and it does mean that I look at what I create differently, not better or worse than what a male counterpart does, but just differently. And that that's not something to hide, that I don't have to say to not show my face and just be like, well, here's my work. Um, that it's okay to be like, no, I'm a woman too. Not that I expect anything different, but I am a woman. That's part of my identity and that's helped me create this, this piece. Yeah, it informs the thing that you made. Right. And in my answer, in no way do I want to diminish what I, what I know and have witnessed and certainly heard quite a lot about. It's, it's quite gendered treatment in workplaces all over <laughs> the world. Right. And, and, and to Laura's point earlier about the older generation of women who say, are we still here? Really? Are we having the same conversation again? Um, you know, in our interview process, we have 25, 26 and 27 year olds who are reporting behaviors or gendered experiences that are not unlike our, their counterparts in their late 60s. So mm -hmm. it, is, it, it is all part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, do you feel through this interview process, and you kind of spoke to it a little bit, Laura, about you've noticed in your classroom if there's fewer women who you know are, are participating that you even find yourself being a little tougher on uh, the female students to kind of represent um, do you feel through this interview process that there is that sense of women policing other women more <laughs> more than more than what more than um expecting them to live up to i guess a certain level of scrutiny or a certain level of craftsmanship or a certain level of well i, I think i'm craftsmanship. i think the younger the younger generation is quite alert to a lot of these things and i think me too has made people much more aware of the nuances of this things like policing each other or being, you know, being, and then, and also being able to talk about it. Um, so I think there, there wasn't, it was, there was just so much that there's so much that doesn't get talked about. And there's so much that is quite subtle. It's kind of overt and subtle at the same time. Um, but I think there's so much more language about it and so much, so much more available to people nowadays to, to talk about this kind of stuff. And I, and as I said, I think the more women there are and the more, diverse opinions you're going to get amongst the women as well they're going to they're going to call each other out some of them and they're going to you know point it out and then they're going to have this it's not just women you there's going to be people who are um you know non-binary or are, are, are not white because that's, that's another thing in woodworking is how predominantly white it is and so all the and all these things intersect and um overlap Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot more language around it, which is great. I mean, for me personally, that has been one of the outcomes of this, the ongoing outcome of this project. I mean, sometimes we joke that it's called the re-education of Laura Mays, this, this whole project. <laughs> um, because it's, it's given me a much better understanding of all of these, these things. Mm -hmm. um, and to the, to the sort of the other dimension of that question is just, I think I was in Philadelphia during the installation process, the exhibition. At Laura, we staggered our time, and Laura came a bit later. And I would say, you know, I've put up over a hundred exhibitions in San Francisco, and um, I would say that the culture of this exhibition is remarkably that this community is remarkably supportive of each other, um, warm and welcoming, and supportive and challenging, and and you know, kind of. It was, um, and I, I'm, I'm not meaning to paint the whole field with too broad a brush, but I would say um, uh, that it's been a, a very, um, uh, it's, it was very, I was very moved actually by witnessing how the community showed up for, for each other. And I think in some sense, because there hasn't ever been an exhibition like this, it was making the community visible to itself in, in this particular way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, 
out of curiosity, are there any uh, male woodworkers that you are interviewing about this idea of gender in woodworking? Well, we part of our research has been a survey as well. And um, okay. it took us about a year, but after about a year, we said, oh, we should send this out to men as well. <laughs> and we did. And we're, we are actually currently going through that data, and it is really interesting, um, the, the similarities and differences. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And from that process, one of the men who received this, am I getting this right, Laura? One of the men who received that survey reached out to us and... Um, wanting to share stories of what he had witnessed in a shop in shop spaces over many years. Um, and so we did talk at length with him. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I know uh, being somebody who, uh, <clears throat> you know, part of, part of my work and getting into social media, I have spent time in what I would call more of the, the maker space, which is still, um, it's still probably a 60-40 split. I would say 60% male and 40% female. Um, but I have found that all of the male makers that I have interacted with are nothing but supportive and nothing but wanting to share ideas with each other and talk through problem solving and solutions. And, um, <clears throat> and also being able to talk to and now start identifying like, yeah, I watched, you know, a woman in the aisle at Home Depot trying to buy a tool and listen to the clerk talk down to them, you know, and then whether they decide to take any action on that or not. And some do take action and say, you know, I think she knows what she's talking about type thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, community of makers and creators is very supportive of each other um, as a whole. So I'm glad to hear that you've had at least a response about that, about uh, wanting to share stories of what they have seen. Right. And, and you know, that Deirdre was referring to like the excitement and uh, enthusiasm of the women involved in the show and then a larger woodworking community. Mm -hmm. And that included a lot of men who uh, showing up at that opening who were just, like really, really excited to see this, really excited to see the woodworking, but also really excited by, um, by the premise of the show also. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, this is definitely selfishly motivated, but is this going to be a repeat show by any chance that I can make sure I throw my hat into next time? <laughs> uh, well, two things. One is that we are looking at opportunities now to travel this exhibition. Um, so that's kind of one piece, which is not exactly your question. Yes, no, but and I, I, I would say that our, our next thing is, is that we have a, a, a book to write. <laughs> 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 April 30th, I really can't even contemplate that. But it certainly, I mean, the, the number of submissions um, certainly suggests that there are more possible exhibitions out there. Um, and we're also quite aware that, that this show says nothing about these kind of adjacent practices of turning and carving and of, you know, tradeswomen, you know, mm -hmm. more broadly. So there's certainly more to be talked about. But I'm not committing to... <laughs> yeah. Understandably so. Um, I didn't totally. Did you say you have to have this done by April 30th? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that the rough draft or completed and like ready to to be published by April 30th? That's, that's the manuscript. So I would, I'm sure that Routledge would not like us to think about it as a rough draft. Um, I think that they would like us to hand over what is, for all intents and purposes, a completed project, um, and that they will then work with us on refining the edits for. Gotcha. Just maybe a little bit high level, what was that process like of um, kind of pitching 
the idea of this book and getting a publisher and all of that good stuff? That was a real adventure. And because neither of us are authors um, before, we had to, we went through a huge learning curve. And um, for a while, it seemed like we weren't writing a book. We were writing a book proposal. I mean, <laughs> for about a year, I was like, well, that, that was what we were doing. And um, we, it, it started, I mean, we just learned. We learned from the um, internet. We talked to, I went to a day-long conference up here in, at the Mendocino Writers uh, Conference and talked to a woman from HarperCollins who was very generous with her time. People were very, very generous with um, giving us feedback. And when I look at our original proposal versus what we ended up with, we came a long way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we learned a lot and we, we tried to incorporate feedback. We just started sending it out to kind of like, do we have any friends who have friends who are in publishing? It kind of started like that. And then... Um, actually every publisher most publishers have a uh, submission process and if you kind of dig around on their website you'll find it and they might have slightly different ways that they like the proposal to be formatted and you start to get an understanding of what they're all looking they're all looking for the same stuff um, mm -hmm. but just in slightly different formats and uh, you know the, the kind of the elevator pitch the longer um, section the uh, competitive titles that was an interesting one because there are no competitive titles, which is, um, <laughs> which is kind of great. Um, uh, oh, I forget what else, but there's, there's a kind of about 10 kind of um, categories that you're trying to kind of answer questions within. And um, we, we sent it out to, I mean, lots and lots of publishers, some of, whom we, some of whom we didn't even hear from, some of whom gave us feedback and some of whom we went into kind of tentative agreements with and then, um, realized that their vision for the book was different than our vision because we, we, we were very clear that we wanted it to have this kind of dual aspect of being uh, showing the um, makers um, being these kind of personal interviews um, mm -hmm. that would be quite in-depth and also have pictures color pictures in there to show them because you know literal literally representing is, is um, important to us and then to have that interest kind of spliced with um, more theoretical chapters and, and, you know, that makes it a more expensive book to have this color in. It also makes it a slightly more ambiguously placed book because is it, is it kind of academic or is it popular? But we deliberately want it to be able to fit into both camps and things like that. So finding the right match. So did we send out maybe 12 times, 10 to 12 times? Oh, way more. I don't think you were aware of how whenever I was bored, <laughs> I would say <send> <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> um, was there any thought given to self-publishing? No. no. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons to do a book was to have this kind of um, imprimatur, this kind of like uh, <laughs> authority <laughs> the book has. Uh -huh. um, and so self-publishing would have kind of negated that. I think we wanted the, uh, yeah, we wanted the, What's it called? The kind of like rubber stamping. It is the kind of infrastructure. But it also, I mean, and that um, we want to be in classrooms, in design classrooms, in schools, because that's part of how you make the work of earlier makers visible and how you change culture. It's important for students to see um, a broader, you know, a more diverse group of makers in their own uh, art history courses, you mm -hmm. know, in their design courses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Self-publishing does kind of negate that possibility. Right. Okay, well, before I let both of you wonderful ladies go today, how can people um, follow along with the journey of the show, especially if you do end up taking it on the road, and then um, follow along and keep up to date with the book and the status of the book? Uh, well, we have a website um, that is connected to the book and the show project, womenwoodworking.org. Um, we need to go back in and make sure that it's all like up to date, but that is where, that's the general place where we place information. Um, and then we have personal websites and um, Instagram as well. Yeah, okay. we have, we have um, a project Instagram. Oh yes, that's right. We have project, Insta we have the project Instagram, making a seat at the, making dot a dot seat dot at dot the dot table. <laughs> Laura is our social media maven. 
Okay, well, I will make sure that I include linkage to all of that um, in the show notes, but I'm not going to lie. I still have to catch up with my show notes on Laura's episode, so it will get done, though. (laughs) Um, Thank you both for taking the time to talk with me today, and I'm excited and looking forward to when the book does come out. Um, I feel like it will will be a part of my very own history. And so I look forward to, to getting to read about that. Well, thank you, Katie. This was a pleasure. Yes. All right. So again, that was Deirdre Visser and Laura Mays of the all-female woodworking show, Making a Seat at the Table, that is now in Philadelphia, and also soon-to-be authors, well, they are currently authors, but soon-to-be released book, Women Woodworking, and I will make sure I include links in the show notes so that you can follow along with both of them individually and with their project uh, that they have going on. And before I let you go, make sure that you're following along with the Maker Mom podcast over on Instagram. That's just at Maker Mom podcast. And uh, the link in the bio there will take you to show notes. We'll take you over to Patreon if you want to become a patron of the show. Big shout out to all of you who are already patrons. Um, I really thank you from the bottom of my heart. Truly, truly. Um, Also thank all of you listeners out there who continue uh, to reach out to support the podcast. Uh, You all help keep me going and uh, keep me in my search for finding more uh, maker moms out there to interview and share their story. All right. Well, I hope you all have a fantastic weekend doing whatever you are doing, and I will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Maker Mom podcast. You can connect with the Maker Mom community in the Facebook group page, Maker Moms. And remember, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please subscribe, leave an awesome review, and share this out with other Maker Moms you know.